It is a joy to be back here again with you. It's a joy to hear about, as I, entered, as I picked it up from your prayer, that there have been not, not just one, but two babies added to your, to your church families this week. We rejoice with you. Uh, my wife and I, as, as you've seen, you've been so kind to our small children. We've been blessed with small children. And for all the noise and mess they make, they will be a blessing, these new additions to your church for, for years to come. And so we give thanks to God for the life that he's granted to your church. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading a few verses from this chapter a little bit later in the service. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you turn there, I want to ask you all a question. What makes you say amen when somebody's preaching? Now, I know different, different churches have different, can I say it this way, amen cultures. So as I've traveled around the U.S., I've been in churches you know, from coast to coast. And in some places, I mean, it's amen every fourth word. And in other places, you go through an entire sermon, a well-preached sermon, where people are paying great attention and following along, but you won't hear an amen. But I think that, I suspect that most of us have been in churches where there's a, where there's a range of, of amen cultures. And perhaps even within this church, there are a, there's a range of amening kinds of personalities. But I suspect, whether you vocalize amen or not, that there are points in a sermon where truth is being preached, that there are certain points, whether you say it or not, that you feel an amen inside. Your heart is fully in tune with what the pastor is saying. He is preaching God's Word. He is preaching truth. And you know it is true. And you want to amen it, to say that is true. That's what the word amen is. It's an affirmation that what is being said is true and it is important. Okay, Some of you are showing me that you're with me right now by nodding your heads. I'll take that as an amen. That works for me. But what is it, what are the things that make you say amen or make that amen well up inside your hearts? In the churches I've been in, which have represented a range of lots of amens to, to none at all, in conversations with people or by seeing when people nod their heads or whatever gesture of affirmation they make, I've noticed two things, two kinds of comments from a preacher that more often than anything else lead to those verbal or nonverbal affirmations. What do you think they are? What would you guess? Two kinds of things. Well, one of them, maybe the most common, is something about how Jesus died to take the penalty for our sins. And I would say a hearty amen to that. That is a good thing to affirm. But the other thing that I've noticed is that when the preacher is saying something about how bad the world around us is getting and just how disgusting the sins out there in the world are. Have you found that to be true in your experience? That the two, two of the most common things people amen about are how much we need Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and how bad things are outside the church's walls. I think I'm picking up that some of you would agree with me, at least some of you would agree with me that that's the case. What should we think about that? What does it tell us about ourselves? Does it say anything about our own hearts, the things we affirm most emotionally, most affectionately in our preaching? Does that reveal anything to us about our hearts, about the kinds of things that we love, does it even refer, re reveal anything to us about what we worship? One author and researcher has described how American, American Christians are increasingly being 
marginalized in our society and about how our views are increasingly not being tolerated, how culture is increasingly hostile towards us. And he's described it with a football analogy, as if we are, we're losing our home field advantage in American culture. So in, the American, in much of America, in the American South, maybe particularly in the state of Texas, Christians have had a home field advantage. That, that throughout society, most people, maybe not all, but most people over the years, over the decades and centuries, have agreed with how we see the world. They've said, yep, that's sin. We agree with you whether we're a Christian or not. We think that's wrong. We think there ought to be a law against this or that. This sort of behavior should be tolerated or not tolerated. But this researcher has said that we seem to be losing our home field advantage. And it makes us frustrated. Just imagine if, if the University of Texas had to play every single one of its football games on the road this year. You who are fans, alumni of the University of Texas, you would be angry about that. Now, some of you who aren't Texas fans would, would enjoy that, I understand. But, but imagine that it's your favorite team had to play all the games on the road. You had a great team this year. But all of a sudden you start losing tough games because you're having to play without that home field advantage. Well, we as believers live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our traditional values and convictions. Maybe things related to, to the creation of the earth, the crea- God's creation of the universe, to our understanding of marriage, or to, to freedom of religion. I mean, I don't have to remind you just how many news stories in the past weeks and, and months, even in the past few days, that would get some of us all fired up, all hot under the collar if I started talking about them. Things that have changed are changing rapidly in our culture that make us frustrated as we see the world, society, culture, increasingly turning against us. Now, I do think this, it's worth pointing out that this is a uniquely American issue. I mean, how different would our perspective be if we were living in Afghanistan or China or Nigeria. I mean, Nigeria is a place where they say 70% of the Christians who were killed for their faith in 2012, 70% of them were in the country of Nigeria. So imagine how much different the experience of believers in those countries might be from ours where we have grown accustomed to expecting that society will affirm what we believe. Well, this morning, I hope that we will be helped to see how Scripture speaks directly into our place in society, how we as Christians ought to expect the world to respond to us, how we as Christians ought to respond to the world outside, and how we as Christians ought to think about what happens among us, among we who together are a congregation. So this morning I hope to show you three principles that will guide our role, the church's role in society. And these three principles are found in 1 Corinthians 5. So let me invite you to follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13. through 13. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man 
from among you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant it to us to think wisely about our position in this world, to think about our responsibility as believers to one another as a church, and about our responsibilities to the world. We pray that we would understand how you are our God, you are the God of all this world, and you will judge all one way or another. We pray that you would give us wisdom and love and a commitment to obey when we think about our obligation even to judge one another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, three principles I want to ask you to consider today that will guide our church's role in society, that will shape how we think about being a Christian who's a member of a church living in a world that may be increasingly hostile to what we believe. So principle number one that we see in this text, sin leads to judgment. Now, I have this section in my notes to define sin. Well, guess what? You already did that for me this morning. So I'm just going to chop a little bit of that out, okay? Just making a note there. But let me say this. Sin, as I've got it here in my notes, is any violation of God's revealed will. I think that's a faithful summary of what you read this morning in the definition that's in your bulletins. Refer back to that if, if, if my definition needs a little bit more fleshing out. In other words, none of us, none of us have fully, perfectly obeyed God. Okay, can we agree on that? In one way or another, every single one of us, I believe, falls short every day. I think we fall short multiple times every day if we're honest with, our, with, our, with, with ourselves. Now, if you're, you've gathered with us this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, first of all, you're very welcome to be here. We love the fact that you've gathered together with us this morning. And we want to recognize that, that you may be here not thinking of yourself as a Christian. And I want to say a couple things to you. First of all, maybe you don't like Christians very much because you've found Christians to be hypocritical. All right? I'm a Christian, and I think Christians are hypocritical too. I'm a Christian, and I think I'm hypocritical a lot of times. So I want to affirm that that's probably a true thing that you've experienced. Maybe you have even bumped into Christians who act as though their problem is with you and they overlook the sin in their own lives. Okay? You might have met somebody who acted like your problems are the big problems, but you're looking at them saying, you have problems in your own life. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 7 when He talked about the need for us to remove the, the log out of our own eyes because then only then will we see clearly to take the little speck out of other people's eyes. Let me just tell you that, that if you have met an arrogant Christian who treats you as if you are less than him and as if you are a greater sinner than he is, you've met a Christian who doesn't really understand what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian it does not mean being a person who has stopped sinning. The Bible says in 1 John that any person who thinks he stopped sinning is a liar and the truth is not in him. In fact, Christians are not people who think that we've stopped sinning. And, and you, the world, you non-Christian, you need to be more like us. No, that is not true. Christians are people who understand that we are really, really bad sinners. But that we have come to believe by God's grace some really, really good news about sinners. The really, really good news that God sent His Son to deal with our sin. We will talk more about that later this morning. 
But I want you to understand, unbelieving friend here this morning, that a Christian is not somebody who's better than you. A Christian is not someone who has stopped breaking God's rules. Now, this passage also describes some of, some of the consequences for sin. It shows us that, that sin leads to judgment. So let me just show you where I'm, where I'm picking up on this in the, in the passage. In, in this passage, there are both horizontal and vertical consequences. But the most serious consequences are vertical. Okay, so look with me down at verse 13. It says, God will judge those outside. Earlier in the passage, he said, don't associate with people who commit a variety of sins. Sexual immorality, greed, swindling, idolatry. He mentions things like um, being a drunkard and a swindler. All these things are breaking God's rule, God's laws. And this passage talks about how there are horizontal, horizontal consequences. We're not to associate with people who call themselves Christians who commit these sins. But there's also vertical consequences. God judges. Sin not only breaks our relationships with each other, it also brings us under God's judgment. What does it mean that God judges? Well, it means, in short, that God pours out His wrath. God pours out His torment for all eternity in an agony that never ends upon all everyone who persists in rebellion against God. I'm not going to go into a lot more detail on that. If you have questions about that, catch me or Samuel or somebody else after the service. But I want to be clear that the consequences are severe and they are certain and they are eternal. This passage tells us that God will judge those outside. Now friend, you may have entered this morning expecting to hear kinder, gentler words and things like wrath and agony torment. As Samuel mentioned earlier, this, the passage that was read from Deuteronomy may, may sound harsh. You might have expected to hear about how God loves us and about how God wants us to be happy and prosper. I'd love to do that. I'd love to talk about God's love and the future that awaits us in heaven, but this is where we are this morning. This is the passage that we have come to consider. I have to preach God's Word. I have to say what God has spoken, not what I want to say. As others have said, I'm not the, the letter writer, I'm just the letter carrier. I didn't write the mail, I'm just delivering the mail to us. Also, because as a pastor, I care for you, I need to speak words that you need to hear. Things that, things that, need, that, that someone who loves you would want to say to you. You, you all know how, how people who genuinely love you can say hard things to you that someone who doesn't genuinely love, love you would not be able to say. Well, I come to you on behalf of of God, who speaks about how He has loved, how He has loved His creation, and He has loved His people, so that He calls upon all people to repent and believe the message of the gospel. So when I warn us about judgment, that means never-ending agony under the harsh hand of God's justice. And when I say that, I am trying to warn you lovingly trying to warn you lovingly that God's, God is a just God. And His justice means that He cannot simply disregard our rebellion. If He did that, He would no longer be just. And I would not love you if I didn't warn you about those things. So the first principle that we as a church need to understand about our relationship to society is that sin, breaking of God's law, leads to judgment. Ultimately, God's judgment. But surprisingly, not only God's judgment. So let's consider a couple other principles we find as well. 
Principle number two is that we as a church are responsible to judge. Principle number one, sin leads to God's judgment. But principle number two, we as a church are also responsible to judge. You say, Ben, where did you find that? Well, look with me at verses 9, 11, and 12 again. Verse 9 says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, the implication there is that the church will have to identify who those people are, what sort of behavior that is, and then take action. Then look down at verse 11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. Then look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. Listen to this. Expel the wicked man from among you. So what Paul is saying is that he is calling the church to exercise judgment upon people within the church who are persisting in sin. These verses describe not just some harsh option a church can take, but the obligation to judge those who are inside. So your church, my church, our churches ought to be judging. Does this surprise you? I wouldn't be surprised if it does surprise you. So let me just take a look at some questions that you may have that we need to consider. First of all, <coughs> excuse me, whom do we as a church judge? Well, the text gives us some clues. First of all, he talks about this word inside. Okay? Paul says, I've written you not to associate with immoral people, not at all meeting the people of this world who are immoral. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But then in verse 11, he says, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Later, later Paul says, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked man from among you. What I believe this passage is clearly saying is that those who are inside are those who are part of the church. Those who are outside are those who do not claim the name of Christ and are outside the, 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 the family that is your church and my church and others throughout, throughout the community and the world. So this phrase, bears the name of brother, implies that some people may appear to be brothers in Christ. They may claim to be part of the family, but actually are not in reality part of the family of God. Here's what we need to understand. Not everyone who calls himself a Christian, not everyone who claims the name of Christ, Jesus has told us this, not everyone like that has repented of sin and believed the gospel. Not every church member throughout the city of Austin, let alone the whole world, not every church member has genuinely received the truth of the gospel. Now, we Christians, we cannot look into people's hearts and you know, play duck, duck, goose, Christian, 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 pagan. We can't do that. But get this, it is our responsibility to look at people's lives as a church. I'm not just saying you go out, this, go out there and do this on your own. It is our responsibility as a church to look at people's lives and to, to assess, to discern, to make a judgment whether they are repenting of their sin. Remember, we're all sinners. The question is whether we are repenting of that sin or not, whether we are fighting that sin or not. And since repentance is a basic mark of a Christian, we, as a church, cannot treat a person who refuses to repent of sin 
This passage is saying we cannot treat a person who is hardened his heart and refuses to repent of sin as a Christian. That's what verse 11 is talking about. When it lists a bunch of sins and says the church needs to break relationships with people who commit those sins and don't repent. So here's a crucial conclusion. The church judges professing Christians. It judges those who are inside, among us, to use the verse there, the, the words there in verse 13. We, as a church, are obligated by Jesus to judge ourselves. Another question, why do we do this? It sure doesn't seem loving to, to expel a person, to give them the boot, kick them out of the church. But Paul answers this question earlier in the chapter. I'm not going to go back and read all these verses. Listen to what I have to say. Maybe write the passages down and check later and see if I'm saying the truth or not. Paul gives us three reasons why it is loving to expel a person who is persisting in sin. First of all, because we love that person who's persisting in sin. Because they are in a death spiral that will destroy them. So Paul even says we hand the person over to Satan so that their body can be destroyed, but so that their spirit can be saved. That shows that we love them because we want their spirit to be saved. Second, because we love the congregation. Chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 tell us that the pollution by one unrepentant, hardened member, that pollution will spread. Third, because we love God's own reputation. We see that in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And then in chapter 6, verses 13 and following. So in chapters 3 and chapter 6, we deal with sin among us because we love the name of God. And we know that the, 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 the validity of the truth of what Jesus proclaimed is validated by how we as a church live our lives. We bear the name of Christ. We bear the image of Christ. Our lives as a church, our lives tell the, the world a story about what Jesus is like. That's part of what it means that we bear His image. So when we sin and when we tolerate sin, we tell the world a lie about what Jesus is like. Does that seem like a serious thing to you? To tell a lie to the world about what Jesus is like. It strikes me as the sort of thing that Jesus would take very seriously if His people are lying to the world about Him. Another question. What is the result of our judgment? Okay, what does this judgment look like? Well, we see Paul saying a couple times in, the, in this passage not to associate with people who are sexually immoral, greedy, greedy swindlers, idolaters, drunkards, swindlers. With such a man... Verse 12 or verse 11, with such a man do not even eat. Let me give you a brief explanation here. These are the sorts of questions that will vary from case to case, and that's something that you'll have to consider should you, your church ever have to deal with it. You'll have to, you, you, there'll be good questions to ask of the leaders of your church. But a summary is that it does not mean, does not mean that we see them walking down the same side of the street as we're on or in the same restaurant, so we walk out, or we cross the street to the other side, so we don't have to speak or make eye contact with the person. But there does need to be a change in our relationship, a change in the nature of our relationship. Whatever contact or communication continues, whatever happens, it needs to be clear between you and that hardened, sinning, unrepentant believer. It needs to be clear between you and them that your relationship is not one 
of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's no longer one of being part of the same family because that person has, has hardened himself and is refusing to follow Jesus. So what's crystal clear, even from the end of verse 11, is that we cannot sit down to a casual meal with someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, but actually is not. I think that's a bit different when, it's, when, it's, when we have a family relationship. Okay, If you're married to a person like that, or child, um, parents, siblings, that sort of thing, I, th- I think that changes it. But we cannot have an ordinary relationship and treat it as if we were Christian brothers and sisters, just like we always had been. That's what Paul's saying when he says, with, a, with this sort of person, do not even eat. We need to make sure that there is no confusion, no confusion about our relationship with that person. Can they still come to church? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no better place for them to be. Can we treat them like family, though? No way. There's, there could be no sort of relationship that would give them reason to doubt the seriousness of a church's action. Now, what kind of sins lead to this action? We get some help from this passage as well. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, swindling. Well, we can all agree with that, right? Amen, right? I mean, these sort of people deserve to be judged. That's the kind of thing a guy could, well, I guess I did, just get an amen to it since I tried. But wait a second. Let's look at this a little bit more carefully. What about greed? You see where this passage talks about greed? Verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Now I'm writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with someone who calls himself a a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. I mean, what would people from poorer countries or poorer parts of the United States think about greed in America? Even about greed among American Christians. He mentions idolatry. I mean, I'm barely going to scratch the surface here, but idolatry is not just having an idol that we bow down in front of. Idolatry is far broader than that. Idolatry means that we love the wrong things or we love the right things, but we love them too much or we love them in the wrong way. Things like children. Is it right to love our children? Yes. But can our children become idols? Can our spouses become idols? Can our pastor even become an idol? Can our church become an idol? Those are all good things. But if we love them in the wrong way, they can very surely become an idol. Money. Money can become an idol. That's what greed is. So let's be honest. We all, all of us love the wrong things or, probably both, or the right things in the wrong way. Idolatry threatens every single one of us. Will you be repenting of the idolatry that you find in your own hearts? Just a little book recommendation. Jerry Bridges, his book, Respectable Sins. Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. Great book, short book, readable book. If you want to think more about the things that we, the kinds of sins that we Christians tolerate. Okay? So our inclination is to yell about the the sins that we find particularly distasteful. Some of them Paul, Paul mentions here. But some of the ones we coddle and we hide in our own hearts, Paul mentions those too. Does this all seem heavy, discouraging, weighty? Does it even seem repulsive to think that we might have to to judge each other and be judged ourselves? I can sympathize a bit. But if you think about it, this passage actually 
ought to be encouraging to us. Let me tell you why. Look at verse 12. Sorry, the end of verse 13. Expel the wicked man from among you. Expel the wicked man from among you. Did you catch that? Have you heard that phrase somewhere else this morning? You may not remember it, but, it, but you have. Samuel read it. It's in Deuteronomy 17.7. It's in five other verses in the Old Testament. This phrase, expel the wicked man from among you. That phrase comes from six verses in Deuteronomy when God gave Israel His laws. And in every single one of those six cases, those laws demanded the death penalty. Now, some of those laws back in Deuteronomy are very much like the laws that we're reading about here in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Some of those laws in Deuteronomy that demanded the death penalty are now laws for the church that demand expulsion. But guess what? There is good news there. There is good news there if you hear well. Because even though we do face the church's judgment if we refuse to repent, the good news is that we haven't been stoned already. That is good news. The good news is that even though among us, even though among, in all of us there is idolatry, even among so many of us, there are so many, there's so much guilt of these sins Paul talks about. The reality is that we have not received the death penalty. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus already took the death penalty for all of us who will turn to Him in repentance of faith and receive the free gift of eternal life. Jesus was already crushed and cursed by God for the sins of us if we will turn to Him and repent. So that is the good news for us, is that there is only expulsion if we refuse to repent. There is no longer the promise of death. There is a promise of eternal life in the presence of Jesus forever. So, men and women, if you are here here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have never committed yourself to repent and believe the gospel, I want to appeal to you this morning, do not let that decision go any further down the road of your life. Why would you wait? Why would you keep yourself under God's death sentence for one more day? Why would you do that? When Jesus offers to you today the gift of faith, the gift of His grace, the gift of eternal life, delivery from all the guilt that you bear, delivery from all the judgment that weighs over your head. We who are Christians here this morning testify that we have deserved all of the weight of that judgment. But Jesus has taken it all away. Now there is still one more principle. Sin demands judgment. The church does judge. But this this passage is also explicitly clear that the world doesn't judge everyone. So principle number three, the church does not judge the world. Only God does that. Let me show you where I'm getting that in this text. You might have picked up on it already. So look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, again, I've written to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. If, if you had to judge the whole world, you'd have to leave the world. Okay? If you had to disassociate from, from people who were like that, you couldn't talk to anybody outside this church. And that's not what Paul 
is asking us to do. In verse 11, Paul's clear that the professing brother is the object of the church's judgment. In verse 12, he says, what, what do you have to do with judging outsiders? That's not your role. Verse 13, he tells us who does judge the world. God judges the world. You, church, purge, expel the evil people, the unrepentant people from yourselves. So let me give you in four statements a summary of, of how this passage ought to shape our relationship with society as a church. Four summary statements. I'll repeat them after I'm done. Number one, we should be more offended by sin inside the church than outside the church. Two, we should be more surprised by sin inside the church than outside the church. I mean, we're not surprised when our children act like children. I'm not surprised, and I apologize, when my children throw their craisins on the floor in the back of your auditorium. I think I picked them all up. But I'm not surprised when children act like children. We shouldn't be surprised when the world, the unregenerate people in the world, people who don't have God's Spirit, we shouldn't be surprised when they act like unregenerate people. Three, we should be quicker to take action against sin inside the church than outside the church. Four, and this is the hard one, I think, the hardest one, we should be more inclined to cultivate friendships with unbelievers than with believers who are not fighting their sin. Remember what Jesus did with the religious hypocrites? They hated Him because He ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and refused to associate with the, hypocrit the, hypocrit the hypocritical religious people. Here they are again. One, we should be more offended by sin inside the church than outside it. Two, we should be more surprised by sin inside the church than outside. Three, we should be quicker to take action against sin inside than outside. And four, we should be more inclined to cultivate friendships with unbelievers than with believers who refuse to fight their sin. But isn't it so easy for us to get riled up about the sins of the people out there? It's so easy for us to be disgusted when we see in culture or, or in television or other forms of entertainment, when we see public homosexual affection. But isn't it easy for us, professing Christians, to be entertained by depictions of heterosexual infidelity in some of the same entertainment media? Is that a right attitude to be disgusted by a certain category of sins and entertained by, another's, by others? What does that say about our hearts? Far too often we are quick to tear apart public officials we don't like, but we are tolerant of believers' sin. We are surprised that the world hate, hates Christians. We are more concerned with, with maintaining political and religious freedoms than in displaying Christ in our own church's life together. We may long for the good old days, but forget that those good old days weren't good for everyone. I mean, some of the good old days that, that we may remember as American Christians were days when people of a certain ethnicity or a certain socioeconomic background had to drink from different water fountains. So the good old days weren't perhaps as good as they may seem to us who have grown up in privileged parts of society. We may be mad at the world for not understanding our position and forget the fact that, that the world is blind 
and needs the gospel. The world is blind and needs the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to see the truth and to desire to believe that truth. We as believers are inclined to, to preach at the world out there, out there, rather than the ongoing sin in here. And if I'm being really honest, the ongoing sin in here. Many Christians are up in arms over our culture's rapid shift to redefine marriage. You see that in the news. We point to how God originally planned for, for, for what marriage ought to be like, but, but Jesus also said, didn't He? What God has joined, you let not a man separate. Do we take divorce as seriously as we take same-sex marriage? I may be speaking to some here this morning who've been divorced. I have no earthly idea. But many, perhaps all of you who sit here this morning, have, have repented and acknowledged your sin. Whatever sin it may have been on your part. Maybe there was not sin on your part. But whatever sin may have taken place on your part that, that led to that divorce, you have received the forgiveness that has been offered by the Gospel I told you about. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty at all. Jesus took your guilt just as He has taken my guilt. If you believe the Gospel, I'm going to encourage you to refuse to feel guilty. But what I want to argue is that we Christians, we can't cherry-pick the applications of Scripture that we like. We can't treat divorce or any other sin that we tolerate among believers. We can't take divorce, treat divorce as, it's, as if it's nothing and then condemn the world for abandoning a biblical picture of marriage. Same-sex marriage won't, de won't destroy marriage. Bad heterosexual marriage is what has already destroyed our view of, of marriage in this culture. So let me bring this principle home for a second. Okay, everybody's sitting down. I was going to make sure. This might be a little awkward, but I want to ask you a question. Would you feel more uncomfortable if the person on the other end of your pew was struggling with same-sex attraction, but fighting against it, acknowledging its sin and fighting against it and seeking help from the Spirit and help from the church, would you feel more uncomfortable if that person were sitting on the other end of your, of your, of your row of seats or if the person on your other end of your row were greedy and unrepentant about it? Would you feel more uncomfortable by a person sitting near you who is repentant, fighting, against same-sex attraction or greedy and happy to indulge in that sin? I think, I think that the answer that the Bible would give to that question is the opposite answer from what many, many Christians, I think most American churchgoers would give. So what does your answer and what does my answer reveal about our hearts? What does it reveal about what we understand about the gospel? So let me ask you one more question. Who is our enemy? This passage tells us that the enemy is not out there. The real enemy is within. And let me point right here. That is where the real enemy resides. In this church, in my church, and in all our hearts. In my heart. What's going to make us angry this week? The next news story about the devolution of the world? Is it going to be the next 
disgusting thing that we see take place in public? Or is what is going to make us angry this week going to be the displacement of God from the throne of our own hearts, our own lives? Will we be angry this week about the world's rebellion against God? Or about the ways we still see ourselves rebelling against God? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with the truth that this church is a safe place to fight your sin. If you have sin in your life that's ongoing and you know it, don't leave this church. Get help from this church to fight your sin. This church will, will be a safe place for you to fight against sin. Maybe the most dangerous thing that we can do is to hide. That's our tendency, isn't it? To hide our sin? I can't think of anything worse to do with sin than to make sure that nobody else knows about it. That will destroy you more than letting others know. Others that you can trust know and seeking their help to fight against it. The Gospel reminds us that we are all sinners and we all still sin. The Gospel reminds us that we have no right to think that anybody else is worse. The Gospel reminds us that God judges the world. But the Gospel pushes us to hold each other accountable and to judge one another so that we tell the world the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give